You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Nader explains what Veda is and how it impacts every aspect of our life. Hello everyone, it's a great time to be together again and this time we are talking about a very interesting subject. In the West, it's not maybe as much known, but there is a great interest in it in the eastern parts of the world, particularly Southeast Asia and India and Nepal and Bali and different parts of the world have been familiar with this, but there is a part of the topic that has become very, very prominent in the world and well-known, and that is yoga. And yoga is a very helpful, wonderful science of health and wholeness and improvement and enlightenment. And the questions have come, what is the origin of yoga? Where does it come from? And it is really interesting because the origin of yoga is very great, is very profound, is very high level of knowledge and science and technology, and that is Veda. Veda is a term in Sanskrit that means knowledge, and this knowledge comes from very ancient time. Sanskrit is an ancient language, it's the mother of many languages. Most languages actually that are used today originate or connect one way or the other with the Veda and Vedic roots. And so Veda is the source, if you like, of what is yoga. And we will be looking at Veda and also some aspects of yoga that are pertaining to Veda. So Veda is knowledge. Knowledge about what? It's really a science, a science and a technology, a science and technology of consciousness, of awareness. Science is uh, something that is systematic, that is reliable, that is repeatable, that produces the effects or the results in a reliable way. And so how can we define something that is dealing with consciousness as a science. See, in the past, if you like, or even mostly in the eastern part of the world, the research that has happened before we got to the modern scientific approaches to finding what is the truth about life, what is the truth about reality, the laws of nature, has been mostly a subjective science, which means a research in awareness, a research in consciousness, which is research in, if you like, the dynamics of the mind, the dynamics of awareness. So what is that? How could it be? Awareness or consciousness is something that today we think of as being either present or absent. But in fact, awareness and consciousness have widths and breadths and dimensions and dynamics. And this awareness that we have is 
the basis of all that we do. You cannot dream, you cannot hope, you cannot create, you cannot enjoy, you cannot have something new, plan something new without consciousness. You imagine somebody who is not conscious, then there is no joy, no pleasure, no love, no care, no knowledge, no science. So the real basis of all that we do as humans, and ultimately everything in creation, is on the basis of consciousness. So the ancient times, and particularly the continent of India and Southeast Asia and that part, the people who were the scientists of the time, if you like, they dwelt deep into their awareness, into their consciousness. And they studied what consciousness is. So their research was an internal research. So it's a subjective, which means it depends on the subject. The person is looking at themselves, within themselves, and studying and feeling and experiencing the dynamics of consciousness, the dynamics of awareness. Why is this so important? It's important because, as we said, without consciousness you cannot do anything or enjoy anything <laughs> or experience anything. But also that consciousness, therefore, is the container of what you experience, of what you know, of what you go through. Which means the facts that you learn, the information that you accumulate and gather, the knowledge that you put to practice in your business, in your life, in your decision-making, in politics, in relationships, is based on consciousness. And consciousness is not just either there or not. It can be wide, it can be open, it can be big, and it can be very small. And we take this as, let's say, a container. A container. You have a basket, and in this basket you want to put knowledge, you want to put facts, you want to have potentialities and abilities and all of that. So if the basket is small, then no matter how you try, after a while, when you put more facts and more facts, then it spills over and then nothing remains. And therefore, the awareness of the individual, like a container, has to be expanded so that we can put more information in it. And therefore, the container of knowledge, the awareness, the consciousness of the individual, can be expanded and expanded and expanded. The beautiful thing about what these scientists of consciousness, and uh, they used to call them rishis or seers or knowers of the Veda or knowers of reality, ultimately as they have been diving within themselves and expanding consciousness, expanding awareness, they were able to expand it till infinity. And that is the beauty of the human being, the beauty of our nervous system, of our capacity, is ultimately we can enliven all aspects of our nervous system, of our physiology also, which is related to our way the nervous system works, and therefore the consciousness, the quality of our consciousness, the depths of our consciousness, the breadth of our consciousness. And we can expand it, as they have found, to actually become unbounded, unlimited. 
So we make actually the container of knowledge, which is the individual human being, truly unbounded. And that happens also in the physiological way because we see that the studies that we have done, for example, on transcendental meditation, which is one of the techniques that, of course, we use today as a modern technique and it's used generally, but of course it had a different name in Sanskrit and in the past, but it's part of yoga. That is a supreme yoga, which actually allows the individual to expand their awareness, which means the container of knowledge becomes so big that becomes really infinite and bounded. And in the Vedic tradition in Sanskrit, they say, Aham Brahmasmi, I am totality. The term Brahman means actually totality, wholeness. So by discovering that one has within oneself all the different dimensions and possibilities and can expand their awareness and their container of knowledge to become infinite, makes the individual feel and is totality and wholeness because one can have a direct awareness of totality. Now, that totality is not just an empty container. It so happens that it has dynamics within it. It has silence, which is infinite and therefore unbounded, no limits to it, but it's also dynamic. It has dynamism within it. And thanks to Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who comes from the Vedic tradition, uh, that I have personally learned, and he has been teaching to the whole world, what truly Veda is, that Veda, in fact, is the dynamics of this infinite field of pure existence, pure being. So there is the silent value within, and there are the dynamics within it. And these dynamics actually are the source of all that emerges in the universe. So from the inner self, from the inner being, from consciousness expanding and consciousness becoming infinite and unbounded, one realizes, one comes to the realization that these dynamics of natural law, the dynamics of consciousness, are the dynamics of natural law, which means the dynamics that create the entire universe. Now, when we look at this as a philosophy or a thought, fine, it's a beautiful philosophy, some people have made out of it even different belief systems, different ways to think and to live one's life. It's really, nevertheless, as Maharishi brought it to light, a science, a science of consciousness, a science of experiencing consciousness and of knowing the dynamics within consciousness, the dynamics within the reality of one's own being, one's own origin. Now, if we were to say, well, okay, you know, this is, sounds nice, but how do we know it's true? Is there something that proves that it is correct? How does it relate to our modern understanding? And we, when we look after so many years when the Veda has declared that there is a field of pure being that is the source of everything, science have been probing from the other side. As we said, the scientists of the ancient times have been on the subjective path, trying to experience and know reality from within, from the subject value. In the West, mostly, but also, of course, in different parts of the East, 
the people who have been saying there are so many different theories about things, how can we prove what is true? So we had, of course, what we call the objective science. The objective science is the science that makes us study things without the subject being involved, so that we study the object, the molecules, the atoms, how they are made, where do they come from. And then you can go to the time of the Greeks where they said that, you know, everything is uh, made out ultimately of some indivisible particle, which let's call it undivisible, and they call it atom. Atom in, in Greek means undivisible, actually, which means it's the last thing. If you take anything and you start cutting it into small and small pieces, you come to a point where you cannot cut it anymore, and that would be the atom. And the whole universe is made out of this atom. But as we studied this atom, we found that there are, studied means we means in modern science, we found that it's made out of elementary particles that are smaller, and then as the science was diving deeper and deeper into the reality of the universe and what it is made of, it was found that it comes to some non-local kind of reality, which means spread out fields and fields of energy, fields of law, fields of gravity, of different forces, of uh, electricity and magnetism. And as the scientists kept diving deep and deep within it, they found that all of these laws, all of these forces are ultimately unified in one field, which is called the unified field of the laws of nature. This is where science is heading. Now, there was this quantum mechanical aspect, then the quantum field theories, and then now they are coming to the unified field theories that actually describe the universe in the same way as the ancient scientists, scientists of consciousness from the Veda, have described the reality of everything. So this is very important to realize that in this ancient system, it's really been a discovery that on the reality of today's understanding of the universe and what it is made of, we come to the same conclusion. But Veda is not just this particular aspect, which is a technology, uh, the part of the knowledge that is a technology, which means it allows us to dive deep within, as we do in Transcendental Meditation, and reach that field of pure consciousness, of pure awareness, which is an expansion of our ability to do things, etc. Now, to prove this, of course, scientifically, we have many, many scientific research studies that show that, indeed, people who reach that field have more creativity, more happiness, more involvement in a positive way, they do the right things in life, and all goodness you know, and growth comes from this. And that is truly yoga. Yoga, which means unity, ultimate unity. Because as we reach that unified field, everyone reaches that unified field, and then we are established on the level of oneness, because it's the same unified field that creates all aspects and all perspectives in life in different ways. Now, those who are listening, of course, from the land of the Veda, from India, and other parts of the Southeast Asia, they will say, but Veda is not just that, it's not just yoga. And in fact, it's not, of course. Yoga is the ultimate, and we started with the ultimate to see what has happened, what is the reality. Unity is the ultimate value. Now, 
we find that the, there are so many aspects of this dynamics of consciousness. So Veda, therefore, has different sections, different parts. Because it produces all of these aspects of the universe, like we have said in science, there is the gravity, there is electromagnetism, there is uh, different dimensions of quick forces, strong forces, and all of that, even though they all come from one unified field. In the Veda, it is the same thing. There is the root from which all comes. And Veda is the root. Veda is that knowledge of consciousness, that experience of consciousness. However, in the Vedic research, they didn't call it gravity and electromagnetism, and they didn't look at these specific surface values, but they looked at the dynamic dynamics of how the unbounded, absolute, pure being, pure consciousness, becomes many and grows into many. So it's the one value that becomes many, and that is expressed in the Veda, ekoham bhayusyam, which means in Sanskrit, I am one, may I be many. So that is really the unified field becoming many. But they looked at it from the perspective of how does this field, which is consciousness, emerge into many. And Marshi beautifully explains this. He says, first, there is consciousness. And since consciousness is something that is conscious, so there is the individual knower, then there is the known, and there is the process that connects the knower to the known. So there is the subject, the object, and the process that connects them. And in Vedic terms, Marshi used those terms for knower, known, and process of knowing. And he called them, Rishi is the knower, and then the known is the chandas, the, the value of chandas. And the devata value is the laws of nature, the dynamics of the laws that connect the knower to the known. So this is just within consciousness. Because it is consciousness, it has these three values of knower, knowing, and known. And therefore emerge values of what we call the Veda. And Marshi explains the totality of all of this, all of this is contained in one of the Vedas, which is called Rig Veda. Rig Veda, he explains, is wholeness. It's a Samhita. The term Samhita in Sanskrit means the togetherness. Togetherness of what? Togetherness of knower, knowing, and known, creating consciousness in an absolute way, not differentiated into three values. And then Marshi says, well, there is something, of course, we can start differentiating from Rig Ved, the holistic value, three other Veds, this Sama, Yajur, and Atharva Ved. And these three values of the Veda are related. One is to the knower, that's Sama Veda, one to the process of knowing, Yajur Veda, and one to the actual object of knowing, which is Atharva Veda. So on the surface level, if you take this literature and you start reading it, you see where, where it is. How does it explain? It doesn't explain it like that. But it took really Marshi to see why and how this has happened. And he explained something very profound about the Veda. And that is, it's not just a philosophy. So it's not about reading it and translating it and understanding it on the surface level. 
it's actually the reverberations, the dynamics of the reverberations of the laws of nature as they manifest from one absolute field into surface manifestation. So it is actually the reverberation of yourself, of myself, of the self of everything, that unbounded field of pure being that emerge, it bubbles like a silent ocean, completely silent from top to bottom. And then in the bottom of it starts a wave and a wave grows and a wave grows and becomes more surface and more surface and it reverberates. And you start what? Feeling vibration, reverberation. And this reverberation experienced by a human nervous system they become sound. They are felt as if sound. Of course, it's a thought because it's the inception of sound, but the origin of sound is a deeper sound, a silent sound, more silent sound, more silent sound, until it's totally silent. And then if you go in the other direction, from total silence, a barely fine thought, and then a barely expressed thought, and then a thought, and then a sound as you express it on the outside. So the Veda is sound that is being expressed, but it is sound and silence. So it's the dynamics of how much sound, how much silence, and how they relate to each other. And that is really the true value of the origins of Veda, these four Vedas that we just mentioned, Rig Veda as a holistic, Sama Veda, Yajur Veda, Atharva Veda. It is their sound value that is important. And Marshi says that their sound, if they really express wholeness and totality, must be structured in a very orderly way. And it was possible through his vision and his analysis to see that these sounds are organized in a beautiful mathematical way, in a very, very profound structure based on these values of Rishi Devata Chandas and how they emerge into multiplicity and multiply themselves. And he has shown how the nature of things influences that, you know, th their own nature, which is what he called his Aparushya Bhasha, his uncreated commentary on the Veda, that shows how nature is structured. And there are scientists that have looked at that from even the field of the Lagrangian of the unified field, how the unified field in modern science expresses itself in mathematics and all of that. So there is an orderly structure that starts as one field, becomes many through an orderly development, and this orderly development are mathematical, are structured in a specific way, and they become the universe. So the sound and silence, sound and silence. And in this there is uh, a saying in Sanskrit that Marshi also called Mantra Brahmanayor Vedanam Dhyam, which means Mantra is the sound and Brahmana is the mechanics of transformation, which is in the silence. Together are what we call Veda. So Veda is sound and silence. It's sound and silence. If you try to translate the Veda, you can get all kinds of interpretation and try to read it, and many people have, and that's how it becomes a philosophy, a belief system, a way of life, and all of that, that you know, emerges from these interpretations of the Veda. But we forget that before that, before we get there, the most important part of the Veda is in its dynamics in dynamics of sound and silence. And that is, its effect is mostly by 
even hearing it, and the hearing it restructures the human body, the human mind, the human physiology, and we have done research on that. Marshi has asked me personally to see how this can be correlated. And it was his inspiration that made me look deeply from a scientific perspective, looking at the structure of our human body and seeing how this Veda's structure can be like the human body also, like the human physiology also. So it was really a fascinating time of research with Maharshi for several years where I looked into these specific sounds and their dynamics and have found with his guidance that actually our body, our human physiology on the surface level is similar in its structure and actually accurately so to the structure of Veda. So the number of cells, number of different parts of the organs, of the nervous system, of the nerves and how they emerge, it's a big thing that took years to put together and it's published as research in Veda and human physiology. We found that the human body, the human nervous system are actually modeled according to those dynamics that Mashi has expressed in the Veda. And therefore, it really brings to our attention that these expressions that we hear in different religions, in different parts of the world, you know, about the man, humans were made in the image of God, about I am Brahman, I am Veda, Aham Veda, Aham Brahmasmi, they are actually real on the level of consciousness and on the level of the physiology also. And they are the reason and the, the explanation of why a human nervous system with its limited, apparently limited value can experience the transcendent, can experience yoga, true yoga, which is ultimate unity. Of course, yoga is also exercises. They are very healthy. But the ultimate purpose of yoga is to create that unity. And our human body, you know, when we do postures of yoga, Ultimately, it's to bring the mind and the body to that level of inner unity. But the supreme yoga, of course, is that the mind directly transcends, directly goes to the transcendent. Uh, yoga is defined as yoga chitta vritti nirodhaha. Yoga chitta vritti nirodhaha, which means yoga is the settling of the excitations of the mind. It's the settling of the reverberations and excitations of the mind, which is the mind coming together. And as we have seen in transcendental meditation research, the whole nervous system starts working in a coherent way and the mind settles down into that field of infinite silence, pure silence. And that is where we reach the states of yoga. And how is this possible? It's because our nervous system is made out of Veda. It's made out of the dynamics of natural law as they express themselves in the different vibrations and excitations that become ultimately the outer universe. So this is a science, a science of consciousness, a knowledge of how consciousness is and how consciousness manifests. And it's a science and technology because we have these techniques that allows us actually to use Veda so that we are 
fully integrated within ourselves, and then, of course, we can benefit from the fruits of all action and the fruits of all possibilities, the fruits of all of that. You see, there is, we can say, what do we want in a tree uh, or in life? We want results. We want achievement. We want the fruits. And the fruits are there outside in a tree, in a beautiful fruit tree. But if we forget the roots of the tree, then we cannot enjoy properly the fruits. If we don't water the root, we don't get the fruits. So by going to the self, by using this technology of consciousness, by aligning ourselves with those reverberations and dynamics of natural law, we make the fruits more healthy, uh, more full, more in numbers, and we can contain them, we can play with them, we can make them happen. So there is no contradiction between inner value and outer value. In fact, the development of the inner, like watering the root, is the basis for the outer success, for the outer enrichment, for the outer enjoyment. And that is really something very important that Marshi has brought to light, is that we should not feel that it is necessary to go out of life in order to develop ourselves and reach liberation, reach moksha. Because, of course, we know that in this culture and knowledge of Veda, one thing is very important is what is the purpose, af after all, of growing and developing and all of that? And what is the purpose, ultimately, of yoga, the purpose of Veda and all of that? And in the ancient traditions, in, in the Vedic tradition, in the they have a term which is called moksha. Moksha means liberation. And what is liberation? Liberation is to be free from the boundaries of perception, the boundaries of life that stop us in wanting, oh, I want this fruit, I want that apple, I want that thing. And the whole life becomes about the small achievements here and a little bigger achievement there and a little better achievement here and like that but we want more and we want more and we want more and we're attached to more and we're attached to more and that attachment is not being free it's being contained and constrained by the outer values and our awareness when we see something we hear something it's captured by these things and we become like a football of situations and circumstances where if things happen on the outside, then uh, we are disturbed. If not, it's not good. If things happen that it's nice, we feel happier, etc. And it's all being changed and channeled and kicked around like a football. And our reality is not, it's not really lived. And liberation means liberation from this. But this cannot happen on a mood-making level. Just I say, oh, I'm liberated on an intellectual level and think about it. It's not enough. What is enough to have true liberation, true moksha, is to truly experience the self. Experience the self of being unbounded, of being infinite, of being beyond this. And it's such an attractive, wonderful state of being that the mind wants to go through it. And in Transcendental Meditation, we use this quality of the mind wanting to go for more and more and reach that state of infinite liberation, transcend, go beyond the limits of life. Now, 
it has been misinterpreted that if you transcend and you have to go beyond, you should go hide in the cave and not talk to anybody and all of that. But that's not what Marcy has brought. To the contrary, he said it is by establishing that infinity within us that we can be most productive, most happy, most uh, rich, most uh, enjoying and creative and helpful to our society. And that is said also in the Veda Yoga, Sta Kuru Karmani, in the Bhagavad Gita, established in being, perform action. Established in the self, perform action. So the action is most fulfilling, most enriching for one's individual and life as a whole. So that is really the essence and clarity and purpose and wholeness of Veda. Now we talked about four Vedas, but Veda has many, many branches. And another time we will talk about them. But Marshi has organized them as 40 different aspects. You have Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Samkhya, Yoga, Karma, Mimansa, Vedanta, Shiksha, Kalpa, Vyakara, Neruk, Chan, Jyotish, and all of the different aspects of, of course, Upanishad, Aranyak, Brahmana, Itihasa, Puran, Smriti, you have the Pratishakyas. And all of these values are different branches of the Veda. It has been said to me by a great Indian Vedic person that I had the honor to meet and to look at who was really concerned to see that that Veda is understood and under Marshi's direction and all that. And he said that now sometimes he sees in society that people take one branch of the Veda, like there is specialty of Vyakaran, for example, and they, they make it like a belief system or a religion. And then they, they are against the others who are like Nyaya people or you know, this group against that group, and, and how we can organize the unity of all of this. And for this, of course, Marshi brought to light that these are different dynamics of consciousness. It's like you're saying, I am the hero of gravity, and the other one says, no, I am the hero of electricity, and the other one, no, I am the hero of magnetism, and no, I am the hero of the weak forces in nature, and I, I follow this aspect of nature, and I follow this aspect of nature. But to have diversity and to have fullness of life, all of these have to be together. You know, for a plant to grow, it needs water, it needs sun, it needs the air, it needs dryness, it needs heat, it needs wetness also. But when you look at these, they seem to be different one from the other. Too much wetness can spoil the plant, too much dryness can burn the plant, too much uh, heat can also dry it. So all of these, however, are needed in a balanced way for the plant to grow. And all of these aspects of the Veda are actually different aspects of natural law. And then when they are together on the basis of wholeness, on the basis of the unified field of natural law, on the basis of Satchitananda, and the basis of pure being, pure consciousness, then they all grow and they all help each other. And therefore there is no contradiction as long as we look beyond the surface and see the source of all that there is and find that this is our self and then grow in wholeness. Now, we have all of this in ourself. We have Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Sankhya, Yoga, and the research 
that I have had the honor and joy and fulfillment to do with Marcy under his guidance has shown that all of these in their structure and their function, they are present within our human physiology. And all the dynamics of natural law that are talked about in the Veda are present in our body. And therefore, we have, even on the physical level, the instrument that allows our consciousness, that allows our awareness to live wholeness and to live totality. And there is no contradiction. In our body, there are hormones that help to increase metabolism, that are hormones that help to calm metabolism. There are things that increase blood pressure, there are things that decrease blood pressure. <laughs> and they work together. And it's by working together that they allow us to be dynamic and active and creative in the outside world. And the Veda as a whole is all of that. There is no contradiction within it. Ultimately, it's one unified field, one aspect of wholeness of totality that expresses itself into multiplicity. And if we are established in that, then we can achieve maximum, live maximum, and actually have 200% of life, 100% inner, and 100% outer. And therefore, Veda is knowledge. Veda is a science and technology of consciousness. People can make out of it a poetry, they can make out of it a philosophy, they even can make out of it a belief system. It is all right if they like it, but it's actually a science. And it doesn't matter who discovered that science. Science is true about natural law, as Marcy used to say also. It is not because Newton discovered the forces of uh, movement and uh, gravity and explained them that they have become English. <laughs> and in the same way, we see Veda as universal because it is about natural law, about total natural law, and about developing the full potential of the individual. And with great respect and adoration for those who have discovered it, we, of course, say that it's not necessarily at all belonging to one specific belief system or one specific way of life or one specific idea, but it's a holistic value. Of course, if we translate the Vedas, we find also in the different branches wonderful suggestions and techniques about living well and about health, like uh, Ayurveda, about uh, architecture like Stapatyaveda, about music like Gandharvaveda, and all of these are to keep from all sides the individual life in tune with natural law. And these are like yoga, yoga and its aspect of physical exercise, also and its aspect of mental reality of developing higher states of consciousness, or in Vedanta, which explains the ultimate unity of life, or in, you know, stories like uh, and events that are recorded, such as, for example, the Ramayana, which gives the story of natural law, how it develops in a way that is on a uh, events level, on a story level. And even this Ramayana has been found. Again, uh, I have been very honored to do this research with Marshi's guidance. has been found to correspond to the physiological functioning. So all the aspects and characters of the Ramayana, they are a description of natural law, of the laws of nature, and how they manifest, but in a story form, 
in a telling form, and that is available in our own human physiology. So it's a joy to have been with you. It took a little longer today, but uh, the Veda can take years to explain. And if we have time, we can take some questions. We have wonderful questions, I am told, from great people uh, all over the world, and particularly also from India. So even uh, I see we are honored that from the Ministry of Human Resources, uh, there has been a question. How can we use Veda to connect with the supreme aspects of life, with the supreme value? And really, it's a joy for me to have already uh, kind of touched on this point, because the supreme value of life is uh, ultimately the infinity, the infinite pure being, the self. And the Veda, from its technology, which means practice, like transcendental meditation, and even from its sound value, its reverberation, listening to the Vedic sounds, listening to the Vedic chanting, helps to put the nervous system back into orderly way, and that will allow the individual, through their nature, to experience the supreme values of life, to live those values, because it reorders the nervous system. It's a, it's a process of entrainment, if you like, or harmonious interaction. You know, if you plug a string of a sitar or a guitar, and it's at a certain wavelength, if there is another string that has the same wavelength, it starts vibrating with it. And this process is because there is coherence and harmony between the two. So when you listen to the Vedic sounds, to the Vedic aspects of chanting and like that, you actually are enlivening within your physiology, within your nervous system, those values that are corresponding and put them back in order. If something was a little disorderly, it helps to put it back in proper order. What this does is the nervous system opens its channels and then can transcend better through transcendental meditation or the techniques of uh, yoga or different techniques that are Vedic, and then be able to experience within oneself the wholeness and totality. It's not something we have to connect with outside. It's something that's already within, and we can achieve it within ourselves. Even, in, of course, in Veda it is said, Vedoham, Aham Brahmasmi, and all of that is explained, but even other traditions of knowledge, you know, uh, it says, uh, as we said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Man was created in the image of God. You know, in the different traditions, for example, in Islam, it says you consider yourself to be an atom in which the whole universe has been folded. That is Imam Ali. But uh, in the Quran also it says, I am closer to you than your jugular vein. And therefore, the divine values, the highest values, are telling us that it's all within, it's all close, it's all here, it's not outside values. And by going deepest into ourselves, then we can experience that fullness and that wholeness and be connected with it. Thank you for the question, it's wonderful. How can we adopt pattern of knowledge along with modern education? That's very important because education tries today to concentrate on information and facts and learning things. And you have to learn this and you go to the exam and if you know them by heart, you put them there. But what about the knower? 
So we have said that there is the knower, the process of knowing, and the known. The known is one aspect of knowledge, but if the knower is not developed, if the container of knowledge is not developed, then the whole thing is lost. It becomes surface value, and we become, again, football of situations and circumstances, and we become limited in our ability to make decisions and like that. So 200% of life is necessary. Inward, so you water the roots, and you enjoy the fruit, and the outward also. Inner fulfillment is very important, and it's the basis of outer growth and outer fulfillment. So one doesn't contradict the other. But if you leave yourself to the outer alone, then you don't achieve liberation, you don't achieve true happiness, you don't achieve true fulfillment, which is the inner value to be absolutely full and powerful and infinite and experience its true dignity of life. And it's our birthright to give, to live that dignity and to have it. This is what we are here for. And so if we become only slaves of situations, slaves of circumstances, or of the outside pulling us here and there, pushing us here and there, the life is lost and the satisfaction will never be full. The satisfaction will never be complete. So be maximum inside and then be maximum outside. And this is how we can give more also. It's not just an individual selfish thing. To the contrary, we can only give what we have. And if we have unhappiness or fear and anxiety, that's what we give. That's what we end up radiating. And if we have happiness and strength and infinity, that is what we can give. And that's what Veda, Yoga, the whole program that is coming from this wonderful wisdom and knowledge gives. It gives infinity so that we can give infinity. Purnamada, Purnamidam, Purnat, Purnamudatshyate, Purnasya Purnamadaya, Purnavivavashyate. That is how it works. This is infinite and that is infinite. And if you take infinite from infinite, infinite remains, fullness remains. Because that is a field of fullness playing within itself. And when we are that and we know that, we can give that. And we have had research, which is amazing also and beautiful and almost unexpected. When people practice these advanced techniques and transcendental meditation together, we can see a transformation in society. There is greater peace, greater invincibility, greater protection, better uh, even social and financial and economic indicators when large groups of people practice these Vedic techniques, these techniques of consciousness, of the development of consciousness. And that is why we encourage to have people come back to themselves, back to the self, and the outer will be full. The outer will be full. And that is not just in the Vedic tradition. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's expressed in different ways, you know. Uh, in every culture, and I have many quotes about it, one that comes to mind is, in Christianity, and he says, you seek the kingdom of heaven and all else will be added unto you. Which means, you know, that is the relationship. You go to the roots and the fruits will be healthy. And every tradition says that. So it's really wonderful coordination, wonderful symbiosis, and together grows inner and outer 
there is no contradiction to the contrary. The inner is what strengthens the outer. How can Vedic knowledge be useful when our educational institutions, society, is only geared to test scores? <laughs> yeah, it's actually the theme that we have been discussing a lot, which means uh, our society is interested in scores and results and facts, and you have to go to the exam and you have to put these, and if you don't get the good uh, marks, then you don't succeed. So we have to be maximum within ourselves and not to mind we will be able to have great test scores it doesn't matter if society is like this and do it with fullness with enjoyment and with greatest creativity so the problem with the education that has only test scores that are a problem is because they forget the individual they forget liberation they forget wholeness they forget the development of the container of knowledge and Marshi is, was fond by saying, total knowledge in one brain, have total knowledge. <laughs> gaining that, by gaining which, you gain everything. Knowing that, by knowing which, you know everything. And that is the knowledge of the self. And once you know that, as we said, you are broadening and increasing the container of knowledge. The container of knowledge is yourself, our self. And if the container is bigger, it can handle more knowledge and more fact. There is no contradiction. So it's fine to have facts. It's best, of course, to have one's ability to handle facts, be full so that handling the facts is no more stressful, is no more imposing, is no more damaging. To the contrary, from the grandness of one's ability to handle facts, one can deal with any fact or any number of facts. So there is no contradiction if we make sure that we water the roots and then we can enjoy all the fruits. What is the mechanism and significance of reading Veda in terms of enlightenment? Reading Veda is fine. It cultures the nervous system and it you know, gives a sense of natural law. If you read the different aspects, maybe Ramayana, like that, or different aspects of the Veda, they give an idea and feeling about natural law and how it functions. But the ultimate aspect of Veda is in the mechanics of the Veda and the techniques of Veda, the techniques of yoga, the advanced techniques of different aspects of the Vedic literature, and also in hearing the sounds and their chanting and their effects on the human physiology. What is the correlation between Vedic education and modern education? I think we have, we have covered that, uh, and it's a beautiful question that seems to come back, because it's a very essential point, because there has been a tradition of feeling either you are on a spiritual path or you are on a path of living life and taking benefit from the objective values, becoming wealthy and becoming building power in, in the objective outer world. And there are those who have rejected all of that. They went to the cave and they took uh, sannyasi, they took uh, value of detachment. And this is beautiful. Those who have that tendency and those who have that desire 
there are programs of course for them and you know they are meant like this their physiology is like this and this is grand and absolutely beautiful there is no question about it and actually when you transcend like that and if you practice the right technique even from that field of being a recluse you are helping society through developing collective consciousness by awakening within yourself your own consciousness, you are contributing to collective consciousness. And that's what we see in these groups that practice this program. However, for those who have, are householders, who are in the world, who want to achieve in the world, that is also absolutely fabulous and it's great. And they create the effect that these <laughs> maybe those who maintain the collective consciousness, then there are those who take advantage of that and produce in society and create beautiful things because then the atmosphere, the ambience, the, the collective feeling is conducive to creativity, to peace, to wholeness, to coherence. But they are also there and they can transcend and they can live their life fully, 200% of it, 100% inner and 100% outer. So Marshi was very clear that to some degree with time, and he explains this in his uh, Bhagavad Gita, introduction to the Bhagavad Gita, where he comments on the Gita, on which is the Krishna teaching Arjuna on the battlefield like that. He says that there has been some extremes where people felt that they have to leave everything. And so they became ineffective in productivity, ineffective in society, and even, you know, became mood makers. They make a mood of being detached and of being a recluse, whereas they have things to work through. And then all people who were interested, they felt, well, I want to live, I want to make a life, I want to have a family, I want to create something. And they felt as if this whole thing is not for them because it requires to be detached and to be a recluse and to, uh, you know, leave everything on the surface. So he gave those techniques from the Veda, from the yoga, the supreme yoga, that allows every individual to totally experience oneself, totally be within oneself and transcend few minutes morning, few minutes evening. That's what transcendental meditation does. And there you go back during transcending, you go back completely to the self. And that is only few minutes morning, few minutes evening. And this gives you the strength to actually go out and act in full value and produce maximum success for yourself and society. So spirituality is like the roots and watering that root, watering being the self, allows objectivity and success in life and dynamic action to be more fulfilling, more creative, more progressing, and more creating waves of fulfillment for the individual and for society. We have one more great question from India. Do you think that the Vedas are more advanced than artificial intelligence? If so, then how would it be useful now? It is more advanced because artificial intelligence depends on using technology, on using machines that are being built by humans. And even if they are more powerful in terms of their processing speed, in their memory systems, and in taking in great information at the same time, 
they cannot transcend and go to the field of pure being, the source of everything. The Veda is actually the dynamics of natural law that comes from that infinite source of intelligence and creativity that creates the entire universe. And by aligning ourselves with that source, we can overcome any damages that even, or mistakes that artificial intelligence can do. So it is very important actually in this time when artificial intelligence is starting to dictate to the world what to do in agriculture, what to do for this, what to do for that, and even strategies are planned to be using artificial intelligence for controlling others or uh, changing crops uh, and all of that. But there will always be hiccups and problems that can be very, very dangerous. So it is very important through this Vedic knowledge, through this ability to go back to the origin of life, this unified field, the origins of everything, the origin of creation, the dynamics that allow nature from one silent reality to become multiple dynamic expressions and align our mind and consciousness with that field. And that is where collective consciousness rising through these technologies, through these Vedic technologies of consciousness, then we have a situation where we can be stronger, more powerful, more foresightful, more uh, planning, uh, more ability to see and make decisions that are in tune with natural law and allow life to grow in fullness and wholeness without damages and without risks of actually annihilation. So artificial intelligence is really great in many ways if it becomes dominant over human intelligence, which is collective consciousness rising to pure being, which is natural intelligence, if humans adopt that, then there is a risk of great damage and great problems with it. But if humans become and remain stronger from the level of their consciousness and awareness individually and collectively, then we can guide artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence becomes our instrument, our slave, rather us becoming the slaves and instruments of artificial intelligence. And this is really a very important and profound question which really requires to be addressed and is being addressed through nature itself awakening in the individual consciousness and in the consciousness of collectivity the importance of rising in higher states of consciousness, the importance of collective practice of the Vedic technologies of consciousness for invincibility, happiness, prosperity, growth and coherence for societies, nations and for the whole world. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube.